Hello and welcome to Happy Place. I'm Fern Cotton and today I'm sharing the very special chat I had with Bjorn Nathiko Lindblad. You know the next time you have a problem arising on your horizon, the next time you feel like you're just about to get into an unnecessary conflict with somebody, just whisper this mantra three times internally and you'll see how your difficulties will evaporate like, you know, dew on a sunny morning. I may be wrong, I may be wrong, I may be wrong. Imagine a world where a few more of us remember that mantra a bit more often. In his mid-twenties, Swedish-born Bjorn swapped his career as a business executive for a life as a forest monk in Thailand's jungles. 17 years later, he left, becoming a meditation teacher and public speaker. Nathiko is the name he was given while living as a monk. It means one who grows in wisdom. That wisdom is something that really shines through in his book, I May Be Wrong, which I read and loved every single page. As you know, I'm an avid reader. But this book really, really will stay with me forever. It's not only just laced with the most incredible wisdom, but it's also gentle and beautiful and eloquent and there's so much storytelling in there I I think I read it in two days I literally could not put this book down so I spoke to Bjorn remotely in mid-December last year and at the time Bjorn was really not very well at all he was diagnosed with ALS which is a progressive nervous system disease that he's had for some time and he was very open in this chat about being terminally ill And also knowing that you, everybody listening to this now, would hear this episode after he had died, which uh, was very moving in itself because he was open about it. He knew this chat would go out after he had passed away. And I found it very difficult to know how to end the conversation, knowing that I wouldn't speak to him again. And the way that Bjorn talks about death is not in any way depressing or morbid. He talks about it with such an expansive lightness that, again, I found deeply moving. And in this chat, we laugh together. I cry. Um, I was deeply moved throughout the whole conversation. And I tell you what, it the whole conversation has really stuck with me and I feel privileged to have had the opportunity to chat to Bjorn in a in a very deep way, having never met him before. And as I said, it's just, a, it's a chat that will stay with me forever and ever. I feel very lucky to have had that time with Bjorn. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Okay. Let's do it. Here is this incredibly special episode of Happy Place for You. (laughs) 
Hi Bjorn. Hi. Oh Bjorn, I'm I'm so thrilled to have you on the podcast and I guess I'd I'd really like to start by thanking you for for writing just the most beautiful book, I may be wrong, which this last week has just brought me so much joy and and so much comfort and has given me so many things to think about. So thank you first of all. Oh, that's absolutely wonderful to hear. That's the first praise from the English edition that I've ever heard. This warms the cockles on my heart. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's praise that's massively due because it's it's just stunning and I'm I'm gutted that I finished reading it now. I'm like, "Oh gosh, what the hell am I going to read next?" It's it's so beautiful. So so the book starts off telling the incredible story of how in your 20s when you had a a really high powered job in finance um you you made this decision it it kind of seems like out of the blue to become a forest monk and i'd love you to tell me a bit more about that feeling that pulled you to change the course of your life so much ah well I guess you know the popular version tends to exaggerate so sounds like I catapulted from the executive suite to the jungle but it's a bit more complicated than that but I was working in Spain I was about to become the youngest uh, CFO of a subsidiary of a large Swedish multinational ever and it was Sunday and I was having what we in Swedish call Sunday anguish that slightly depressing or not so slightly mm-hmm. depressing feeling of here's another work week in front of me and I'm not looking forward to any aspect of it mm. um and I was in my sofa I had recently read the 70s classic Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance you're probably too young for it but it was one of those books that became popular in the hippie era eastern mm. wisdom light version so to speak quite philosophical actually and in that book i'd picked up the notion that in the stillness in the quietude of our minds which is always there there is some something valuable there and so that was a intriguing notion not totally new but it was formulated in a way that really got my attention and so i just kind of lay down in the sofa and i thought what do people do when they meditate all i know is they seem to be awfully occupied by breathing so i thought well i'll try it so i just followed a few breaths you know and of course my thoughts they came and went on other topics i never could take more than 3 or 4 breaths fully aware and then you know my thoughts would go off but no on a relative level nothing fancy or mysterious but my inner life quieted down a little bit because that's what happened when we start to become you know the active observer of our thinking rather than being identified with them so you know relative quiet appeared and those thoughts about the heavy week ahead was kind of lightened and didn't seem so oppressive and then there was this completely how do i explain it you know how sometimes a thought comes to you as out of nowhere it doesn't feel like you've thought it it almost it bubbles up from another place than the usual inside and it was very short and very convinced and it said you know it didn't kind of use words in some way but the the sense was it's time to move on it's time to move on very simple 
And, uh, you know, then my intellect took over. So I started reasoning with myself. What are my parents going to say? What's my boss going to say? What am I going to do instead? I'm letting people down. And then the other side, you know, but it's my life. I'm still young. I have many possibilities. You know, I'm not contracted to do this for life. It's my life. And very quickly, you know, I just kind of, I got settled in. Yes, this decision came from a very unusual place in me. It wasn't the end result of a process of reflection or thinking. Of course, I'd thought about my job occasionally and everybody does. But I'd never really seriously considered quitting and just walking away. And so I sometimes when I talk or write, I use that situation to remind people that we have several ways of coming to decisions, we humans, or to insight, if you like. You know, one way is the intellect. We reason our way through something where we need to make up our minds. And that's a wonderful, lovely quality. No other beings on this planet seem to have it as we do. But it's not the only tool in the toolkit, if you like. And sometimes we forget that we also have something which, you know, some people call it intuition. The Buddhists tend to call it wisdom. I sometimes use the expression, the intelligence of the moment, to not make it sound too spiritual, if you like. You know, sometimes when we have some access to the stillness that's always there inside, a solution, an answer, an idea can just appear quite, quite ready. You know, it's already ready. <laughs> it doesn't mm. need shaping up. So that's what happened to me. It wasn't the first time, but it was the first time I was really conscious of what happened. You can't really uh, ignore that sort of exactly. inner voice. Exactly. E even if it's not words forming, that feeling when you can differentiate it between, you know, like you've just said, coming up with pros and cons and then settling on an idea versus like a fully formed idea that comes yeah, yeah, to you. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've had it myself. And, yeah, I'm sure you and have. You, you can't not act on it. It's so... No. And, it, and if you do ignore it, it just yeah. gets louder and yeah, louder. Yeah, exactly. And, and I love that you, you describe it in the book as the first decision that you'd ever made without anxiously looking over your shoulder. Exactly. For, for some sort of like nudged, yep, go on, you've made the right choice here. And, and I think we forget how infrequently we do that how infrequently yeah, we make yeah, decisions yeah, 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 without yeah. someone else egging us on yeah, but yeah, yeah. I guess again that points to a decision that comes from a place of wisdom you don't need someone to back up the idea you just have to do it exactly and it's like a wonderful thing and as I've become more attuned to this and interested in this over many years now I notice so well that the body knows the truth yeah. You know, there's a response from the body where a voice speaks to you from your intuitive, wisest side. And that's so lovely. The body has its own intelligence. I can often feel just like, you know, a little shiver or a vibration or you just get, you feel like you're being slightly moved or something. It's just, ah, the body recognizes the truth when, he see, when it sees or hears it. I guess to experience that, clarity whether it's cognitive or physical there does have to be a sense of stillness because we're so easily distracted in the modern world with you know technology or food or gossip or whatever it is that we can become quite numb to all of these signs and um, voices that might be speaking to us so 
I guess a level of stillness is usually needed to to allow us to hear that inner voice or feeling. Yeah, I'd agree. But my only caution is I don't want to make this too spiritual or mystical because it's something that every human being experiences more or less often. But there are certain conditions that support it. And I would say, you know, clarity or calm, two of them. I ended up becoming a Buddhist monk for 17 years after business life. And the master who started the tradition that I belonged to was a wonderful Thai man called Ajahn Chah. And uh, he once once compared it to, you know, when you have like, I don't know the English word for it, but a really, really small lake in a forest where the wind doesn't reach, you know. Maybe just a little pond. Yeah, like a, a little pond, you know, if the... If the pond is, uh, if there's like mud in the water, so it's uh, muddy and you have leaves on top or maybe the wind affects the surface, you know, if you pick away the leaves, if the wind stops, if the mud falls to the bottom, then all of a sudden you can see, you know, that's a stone, Mm. that's some little algae, that's a piece of wood, that's sand. So basically calm can help you to see things clearer. And it's not always necessary. I think we all have many examples of when, you know, a situation with great distress where we feel really pressured by life. And for some reason, somehow, I think it has to do with surrendering to the moment. We find ourselves knowing exactly what to do within a split second. And we can access that place also, you know, when life is not clear and calm and still and all that. But it's a little overlooked an overlooked resource in human inner life. I was so pleased when I found this quote by Albert Einstein. He said once that uh, reason is a servant, intuition is a gift. We have made the servant a master and forgotten the gift. Isn't that lovely? Isn't that lovely? God, well, we we need to take heed of that. I think more now than ever. Yeah. Um, we really do because the state of the world at the moment yes. seems to be a yes. magnified version of yes. what you've just described in yes. that quote. And we we have to we have to you know understand that we all have that innate wisdom. It's, it's like you say, it's there for everyone. It's yes. um, we just overlook it or or don't. I guess give it the the respect that it 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 deserves. So, look, I'd love to to talk then about this incredible seventeen years you had as a forest monk. C- can you describe what the um, experience was like of of entering that sort of life, coming from Sweden and and like you've just described, having that you know sort of Sunday angst and going into a busy working week. How did you integrate into a monastic life? Oh, uh, it was it was the weirdest thing, you know. Mm. I read this book, you know, about a year before I became a monk in Sweden. By then, you know, I was a practicing Buddhist, meditating every day, quite starry-eyed and newborn Buddhist. Um, (laughs) And I found this book called Seeing the Way, and it described how men and women, mainly from the West, lived as monks and nuns in Thailand in an English-speaking monastery. And they were like essays and talks and guided meditations, Q&As, and that really fired me up. So I gave everything away that I owned. I paid off my student debt and gave what was left to my parents. And off I went. 
And so I come to this poorest part of Thailand. It's called the Isarn. It's close to where Cambodia, Laos and Thailand meet. And, you know, the first night I stayed in town, I washed my hair in the morning and I thought, this may be the last time I wash my hair in my whole life. Mm. <laughs> and took a little tuk-tuk, these three-wheeler Thai taxi taxis, to the monastery. You come in, you know, outside it's like uh, rice paddies and rather hot and flat and not very pretty countryside, really. And then you come in through this valve. Do you say valve? Like, a, you know, you have trees, like a tunnel around you. Like a little valley, maybe? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, it's it's a path, but it's tree-covered all around. So it's like being in a tunnel made okay. of trees. And then you come up to a beautiful meditation hall in the middle of the mm. jungle with, like, humongous windows without glass in them. And I came at the time when the monks were eating, and it was very obvious that this is not a time to go up and talk. So after the meal was finished, I kind of went up on my knees to the abbot as it's done in Thailand. And I was quite, uh, what do you say, solemn, you know, mm. basically, I've given everything up, I've given everything away, I've come to ordain as a forest monk, you know, here I am. And yeah, but it was a Canadian, you know, ex-hockey player, ex-lumberjack. And he was so uh, non-ceremonial about it. Yeah, fine. You can check in in the male dormitory. If you stay for more than three days, you'll have to shave off your hair. You know, welcome. It's like, oh, that's, 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 I'm, I've, got, I've got quite a lot in this and he doesn't seem very impressed. But then after years, I realized you have young, starry-eyed men, because they're off, more often men than women, coming to the monastery every week, doing more or less the same thing as I did. You know, this is it. I've given everything up. I'm going to be a forest monk. And, you know, within a week, half of them are on their way to Bangkok with the train again, because the reality didn't match up with their expectations. And so he'd seen that so many times. But for me, it was different. I... I mean, the lifestyle is extreme. It's totally weird from an outside perspective. You get up at three o'clock in the morning at the latest. You stumble your way across the jungle, hoping not to step on any snakes or worse. And then you meditate at 3.30 together. You know, you bow to Buddha statues. In a forest monastery, there are Buddhist statues pretty much in every room. And you never sit down in a room without bowing to the Buddha statue three times before. So you bow a lot. Bowing <laughs> didn't mean anything to me. I mean, I have no relationship to bowing to an image. And then you chant. You know, it's a language nobody has spoken for a thousand years. And then you sit still and meditate. Not unusually while the mosquitoes are having breakfast on your body. <laughs> <laughs> And like, you know, I kept falling asleep all the time when I meditated, but only for the first eight or nine years. Wow. wow. <laughs> so, and you know, it's like, I imagine that part of my reasoning when choosing to become a Buddhist monk was finally I'll get away from other people and get some me time, you know. Mm. <laughs> and then when I come to the monastery, I realize I've just checked in in the most eccentric collective I've ever even been near. And it's 724, 365. There's no holidays, no weekends or evenings off, you know. Mm -hmm. And I just realized I didn't expect this, but social training 
is going to be a large part of my monastic life. If I don't learn to be a little bit more grand-hearted, forgiving and tolerant, I'm going to I'm going to go down here. I'm 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 so interested in that sort of unusual aspect of of life that you've just talked about the weirdness perhaps to to, yeah. to the outsiders that yeah, 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 that yeah, we yeah. would view monastic life as something with well like you, you state in the book I, I can't remember the exact number but there's over 200 rules for forest monks and even and even more for nuns but over that 17 years you, you you talk about life in a way that seems there was perhaps way more freedom than you'd ever experienced, although you're living within a set of such rigid rules. And, and I, I wonder, yeah, how, how do you how do you get that sense of freedom with so many boundaries in place, yeah, I guess? Yeah. Well, just imagine, you know, I didn't touch a coin or a bill or a credit card for 17 years. I had nothing to do with money. Imagine all the things you don't need to concern yourself with if yeah. you're not in the market for buying and selling. Mm. That's tremendous. You know, you have very few possessions, not extreme, but, you know, you have... When my sixth year as a monk, I did a 500-kilometer uh, pilgrimage, you could say, from a hermitage where I'd spent a year to my monastery, and I carried everything I own in this world on my shoulders and was maybe... 20 pounds at the most. Uh, so, you know, you lived lightly. Mm. You uh, changed within the monastery. You tend to tra- change dwelling, you know, your hut every month or so. So you don't really get too uh, cozy in your dwelling because, you know, you know, I'll move to another one soon. So you learn to just, you know, live lightly and not make too much of your particular home or your particular possessions. Mm. And also, you know, there's some peace in, imagine having only possessions that you can repair yourself. We sewed our own robes, you know. I know in Sweden we have, uh, one of the classes we have to take when we're young is sewing. So, you know, I had some advantage being Swedish. I, I was used to sewing machines. So with these old, antiquated, non-electrical, foot-driven sewing machines, we made our robes. You know, we made our toothbrushes from wood from the local forest. It's like you basically don't have any technology that you don't understand and can't handle yourself. That's a type of freedom too. Yeah, it, it, it's so interesting and beautiful to learn about this way of thinking and this way of life because ultimately you're, you're just not, you're not having any attachments to, to anything, materialistic or otherwise. And like you even describe in the book, you, you can't have food preferences necessarily. You're just given what you're given once a day and you eat it. There's little attachment to preferences. And well, uh, I have to correct you there, Fern. There's plenty of attachments. You don't get to satisfy them. That's the difference. <laughs> right, okay, okay. So you're constantly having to practice, to practice yeah, well, that, you know, that, that Before one. I was a monk, when I was like a layman in the monastery, as everybody is in the beginning, um, the monastery helps you renewing your visa when you're a monk or a nun, but not when you're not. So I was planning for my trip to Malaysia, Penang, where they have a Thai consulate to renew my Thai visa. And because I was falling asleep so much sitting meditation, I tended to do a lot of walking meditation. And I noticed I could have 
one-pointed, unbroken attention while walking on my walking meditation path for an hour on what pizza places and ice cream parlors <laughs> I was going to visit in Penang. So, you know, when there's some desire involved, we can be very one-pointed. That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of sweet, you know, because it's like Ajahn Shah, one of the wonderful things he said was 95% of a forest monk's life is trying to let go of something and not being able to. <laughs> <laughs> but then you like Thai society is very allowing. So it's, you know, I think we have some shame and guilt heritage yeah. in this part of the world. But Thais don't seem to have that very much. So mm. nobody is pretending they're a saint, you know. So yeah. we had a lot of fun, you know, because it's kind of part of the part of the culture to mildly joke about oneself. So imagine the combo, basically a Anglo-Saxon culture because maybe half of us came from english-speaking countries and then on top of that the buddhist idea that identifying with every thought and emotion and bodily phenomena is not such a great idea you get quite you know you get a skillful way of just making fun of ourselves making fun of each other i was at a radio interview for a few years ago and i'm always interested when there's a question i've never heard before and the reporter asked did you laugh most before, during, or after your monk years? And the mm. answer was immediate. While I was a monk, I laughed yeah. more, you know. We really, we had a lot of fun. Well, well that's it. You, like, you, like you just said, you know, in the West, we do have a lot, a lot of guilt and shame. We, we've done whole episodes of the podcast on, I can imagine. on those emotions. I and, can imagine. Brené Brown. In, like, Brené Brown, she came yeah. on the podcast just the other week. And, um, and this is the thing. I think the the propensity for us to fall into those sort of categories, it just annihilates joy and laughter immediately. It and does. I guess self-compassion allows you to have that sense of fun and a, a lack of seriousness about oh, yeah. all of this stuff. I would say like, you know, if I was to summarise, <laughs> you know, like I I did an MBA at Sweden's most prestigious business school before I... Uh, became a monk, you know, before my career in finance. And some of those friends, they asked me afterwards, you know, like, what's your achievement, you know? <laughs> they look at the monk's life as, you know, <laughs> what, 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 what's, what's the takeaway, you know? What's your unique selling point? And I said, well, sometimes I say, you know, the best reward from 17 years as a Buddhist monk is I've just become a better friend with myself. Yeah. I'm better with me in times of difficulty, in times of happiness. I'm just, I'm just easier company to myself. And I can imagine if that sounds a bit weird, but I think most of your listeners will recognize that there tends to be a voice in most of us which goes rather quiet when we do things well and can get very loud and not very generous when we say something we hadn't quite considered or do something we hadn't quite thought through or we're late to something or we get something barking up the wrong trouser leg or whatever. Yeah. So that I had that voice, very critical, very harsh. And that's just kind of, for one, it's grown milder. And for one, I've learned that I don't really take it at face value anymore. I'm more aware. So, oh, here goes that sad, tired old voice mm. telling me I'm no good just because I made some 
pretty human mistake. Yeah. And we forget, we forget that the more we, we do that and we sort of punish ourselves for making, as you said, you know, we're fallible humans making human mistakes. We're, we're, we're even less generous with our forgiveness towards others. We, we become exactly. you know, even more uptight about other people oh, making yeah. mistakes, oh, which yeah. is, again, it's going to annihilate joy in, in a very short time. And, and I loved in the book that you said one of the other things that you value hugely from your 17 years as a forest monk is that you just don't believe every thought in your head anymore. And I think everyday humans have a real problem with this. We all believe all of it. We believe every single thought to be true. So, So how do we start to change that habit? Well, you know, that's it's kind of that particular piece. On a way, it's so simple that it can be overlooked. Yeah. But actually, if you take it on, it's profound. What tends to happen in meditation, as I'm sure you're well aware, is you sit there and you're told to focus on something, maybe your breath or maybe a little inner word or maybe some other physical sensations or the heart or whatever. And then you notice maybe for the first time, goodness me, I thought I was a rational human being that thought about what I wanted when I wanted and you realize it's chaos in there. <laughs> I'm telling myself I should focus on my breathing right now. Yeah. And then I go off on a million tangents about other places, other times, other people. Mm. And so that's the first discovery, you know. Yeah. And then as you kind of learn introspection through meditation, you realize I'm not really thinking my feelings. Mm. I'm not really thinking my thoughts. Like these thoughts, they just come to me. I'm like a radio, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And a lot of our thoughts are just conditioned patterns, Mm. you know. Mm. And so after a thousand, a hundred thousand, ten million times of, whoops, here's another distracting thoughts, I'll just let it go and go back to the breathing. You slowly develop a new relationship to your thinking process where you don't automatically believe everything you think at face value. And that's tremendous. You know, imagine if a few more politicians a bit more often could remember I may be wrong. Oh, uh, Maybe it's a good idea to not believe every thought I have. Uh, well, wouldn't position I have. wouldn't that be like the the biggest miracle ever? And and yeah, something ever. we just need because I feel like well, it's a, it's a fact. We all know we're living in the most divisive times where everybody is very very wedded to the opinion of the world around them and how things should be and i love the the story you tell which you know gave you the name of your book i may be wrong do you mind sharing that story with us now because i've been oh, i've been lovely. thinking about it's this lovely. relentlessly since i read mm-hmm. it you know the canadian guy i told you about that was the abbot when yeah. i arrived after a few years he left for california to start a new branch monastery there and then an Englishman took over. His name is Adyan Jayasaro. He's one of the most brilliant men I've ever met. And one of the unusual things about him is he's not only, only intellectually brilliant, but his heart is open and they communicate with each other. So he, he made an impression. Basically for four years when he was the abbot, I would be like, if I see his lips move, could the world please quieten down? Because mm. I do not want to miss a word. Mm. And so every, we had a lunar calendar, so every full moon, new moon, and the half moon rising and falling would meet uh, in the main meditation hall to meditate all night. 
you can imagine it a bit like a Buddhist Sunday. So you'd have like 150 or 200 villagers, some people from Bangkok maybe, you know, just people who were, what do you say, disciples? Yeah. Or par- parishioners. And they'd come and sit and meditate with us for the night. And, you know, we'd bow, we'd chant, we'd meditate. And then at midnight, uh, the drinks came in, <laughs> coffee and tea. It was extremely welcome, especially by people like myself who tended to fall asleep <laughs> while meditating. <laughs> and then uh, after the coffee, uh, he climbs up into the high seat. There's like a tradition in Buddhism that the person giving a talk should sit a bit higher out of respect for the teachings, not out of respect for him or her personally. You know, so he climbs up into the high seat, sits down with his legs crossed. There's two huge brass Buddhas at the front of the room and lots of candles and lotus flowers and incense. And everybody is like very attentive because he was a loved or is a loved and respected teacher. And so he starts, his. I was using his talks to try to learn Thai because he speaks a bit slower and more easy or his pronunciation is clearer than most of the Thai people. So, you know, he basically started out saying, tonight I'm going to give you a magic mantra. And the villagers and the monks, we were all very surprised because the forest tradition is kind of known for not being so interested in the magical, mystical stuff. Mm. Uh, For a lot of people in Thailand, that's where it's at. They're really interested in all that. But the forest tradition tends to... uh, shy away from that a bit. That's not the point. So here the Western forest teacher tells us we're going to get a magic mantra. Everybody's really surprised. And then he says, you know, the next time you have a problem arising on your horizon, the next time you feel like you're just about to get into an unnecessary conflict with somebody, just whisper this mantra three times internally and you'll see how your Difficult, this will evaporate like, you know, do on a sunny morning. And we're all like listening, you know, he's got us all in his hand. And he says, are you ready? Okay, here he comes. I may be wrong. I may be wrong. I may be wrong. And, you know, that's 20 years ago I heard it. And to me, no, it's 25 years ago. And to me, it's still the perfect mantra. Imagine a world where a few more of us remember that a little bit more often. Imagine how much we'd learn from talking to each other. Imagine how good it would feel to tell somebody else about something that's important or difficult for you. Imagine how political life would look if people remembered that mantra a bit more often. Oh, it, it's exactly, again, what we need to be, because it, it goes, I guess it, it it leads us to listen to people properly because yeah, if we're exactly. willing to step yeah. down from our own, you know, tightly wound up ideas about how we view ourselves in the world and where we fit into it, how we view the world around us, you know, if we can loosen our grip on that, it's a freeing, a great place to listen, but also it's humbling. Like a lot of this stuff, it, yeah. it's humbling to yeah. dismantle everything we believe about the world and ourselves and uh, you know certainly not easy but I guess that's the point of it to to be humbled by life yeah it's not easy but it's not quite hard either Mm. when you start to see the advantages I mean yeah I think for example that probably every human being knows the difference between 
telling somebody something where the other person is really with you and taking your story in, and when the other person feels like they're formulating what they're going to say as soon as you stop speaking. Yeah. It's two totally different experiences. Perhaps we need to reframe culturally how we just view life because of course if you're having a disagreement with someone the desired outcome very subconsciously is for you to win for you to have won the argument to be the one who was right but if we're going along this lines of thinking we're we're ending up at the the true beautiful conclusion that that could be the destination which is a bit of peace where, you know, nobody has to be right or wrong, but you've all listened to each other. But we're we're missing the mark by going, I have to win. I must win this argument. I need to be right. It's a terrible shame. It is. Like uh, for the last, since I stopped being a monk, even before I stopped being a monk, I follow a lay teacher, you know, somebody who's not a a monk, uh, who's called Adyashanti, an American my age in his 60 or so. And once we were sitting at a retreat in a summer in Holland, and he said something that I've never forgotten. I'll see if I can get it right. It was along the lines of the best way to make sure somebody stays exactly the same is to internally demand that they change. Mm. <laughs> and if you want somebody, if you want somebody to become a more enjoyable, free version of themselves, then, you know, let's say you have a difficult person in your life who doesn't, you know, in some context or other. This ongoing inner or even voiced intention or wish we may have that the other person change and be less so or more so, whatever quality, that's like the surest way of making sure they stay the same. Yeah. But if you want the opposite... If you want them to become more enjoyable for you and less annoying, you know, there's a surefire way of doing that. And that's learning to love them just as they are. Yeah. Everybody responds so well, consciously or not consciously, towards just feeling welcome, accepted, appreciated, not judged. It's like pure medicine for the human psyche. And I guess applying again that wonderful mantra, I may be wrong because we yeah, probably exactly. are wrong about that person or what their intention is or why they're like they yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they shouldn't interrupt me. They should have invited me. Yeah. Well, should they really? We have reality here and you're arguing with reality. There's a wonderful uh, American teacher called Byron Katie. And, you know, she has this kind of broad American drawl. And she had said something like, I notice when I argue with reality, I lose, but only 100% of the time. So the whole, the notion of the word should, you know, yeah. you should be more like that or do less of this. No, because that's not obviously what's happening. Well, exactly. You can still have ideals. That's a wonderful thing to have ideals. And in one's personal life to aim towards being more of this or less of that for a good reason. But to demand that the world around you adjust to your ideals, that's not very realistic. Yeah, she did a brilliant interview with Russell Brand on his podcast, actually, that I so ah, enjoyed. It was... Ah. Um, oh, she's brilliant. It was really it was really wonderful. And I guess looking at the sort of humbling nature of life when you start to deep dive like this, um, another... I guess it is a very humbling discovery that we can all stumble upon is that most of our 
own suffering is self-inflicted and we don't yeah. we don't want to hear that you know we really don't we want it to be someone else's fault something else is accountable for our own suffering but nearly all of the time that's not the case would you say i would say all of the time right. because there's only one human being in this universe that can assuredly inflict psychological suffering upon me and that's the one I see in the bathroom mirror every morning, you know. Mm. Other people do what they do. And I think it's almost like I'm sounding a bit dogmatic here, perhaps, but why not? I think it's an unavoidable step in the evolution of human consciousness, if you like, to stop pointing finger and blaming others for the difficulties in our lives yeah. and look at the part that we ourselves have the responsibility for. Mm. And that's often thoughts including a should you know yeah he should they should my parents should have the worst ones are of course i should they're very harsh and difficult mm. you know some wise person said notice when you're pointing the finger with blame at somebody may, may there be a clue in looking at which direction most fingers point towards you know if you point your index finger away your three fingers below that, they will point right back at you. <laughs> <laughs> That's so brilliant. Yeah, and it's, yeah, it's so true. It's yeah, so yeah. it's so true. And I And it's also so empowering. Yes. You know, because it's like, I can't do that much. I mean, even changing myself seems near impossible a lot of the time. So starting to change others, well, good luck, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, the one I can develop a more supportive, loving forgiving the upbeat relationship to is the one i'm with from morning till night every day yeah and it's no small i mean we were you know like when we we were like a cultural experiment in thailand because we were westerners most of us planted into a totally asian experience yeah and one of the things that our teachers noticed that whoa these westerners don't really like themselves very much yeah and so we were encouraged to do a bit more of the loving kinds of meditation than the Thais, because they seem to have like a healthy self-esteem right from the start. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when you look at the Buddhist scriptures, the Buddha selected four qualities of the human heart that he described as divine abidings, you know, like where the gods dwell emotionally. And they're, of course, loving kindness. They're, of course, compassion. And it's a quality that's not so much spoken of, but it's called mudita, sympathetic joy, mm. the capacity of the human heart to rejoice at the well-being or when things go well for oneself or others. And the fourth is equanimity, which perhaps doesn't sound very emotional to us, but it is. It's a profound state of acceptance. And then when the Buddha described how you develop these qualities inside yourself, it was always the same pattern you always have to start with yourself. Mm. You know, the beautiful emotion you cannot sense for yourself, you will not be able to sense for others. Mm. And that was so awkward for us, you know. Most of us were quite happy to develop a sense of compassion with people or animals in distress or whatnot. But to develop a true sense of compassion for yourself, like another human being, imperfect, doing their best, getting it right sometimes, getting it wrong sometimes, mm. but doing their best, you know. I'm with them. 
morning till night, every day. Yeah. Why not have some compassion? Why are we in such bad shape with that in the West? Why do we I have wonder. such a lack of... Is it advertising yeah. or like what's yeah. got us to that I think place? it's a lot older. I think right. it's a lot older. You right. know, the Dalai Lama was sitting in Dharamsala talking to a group of Western meditation teachers, some well-known names. Somebody recorded it, so I listened to it on a cassette a tape in the monastery in Thailand. And one of the Western teachers brings this topic up and says... You know, Westerners have a lot of guilt and shame and finding it hard to like each other, like themselves, sorry. Yeah. And the Dalai Lama took a while because the notions of guilt and shame were not very familiar to him. And then he said, oh, that's really sad. In Tibet, we don't consider anybody an adult until they like themselves. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's a different statement, isn't wow. it? Wow. And we almost have like a caution or other. What would the world look like if everybody walked around being friends with themselves, even liking themselves and perceiving themselves in a forgiving light, you know? I think in the UK we've we've taken that one to the extreme as well, you know, sort of self-deprecating, sometimes with humour, but other times laced with, a, a you know, a lot more toxicity than that and it's it's sad it's it, you know i count myself in that group it's 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 a tricky one and it's a daily discipline i guess yeah, yeah. as well swedes and- are pretty good at it too mom deserves better than a drugstore card this mother's day surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. add your favorite photos a heartfelt message and we'll even mail it for you the same day all for just five dollars From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com I'd love to to talk to you about that, you know, a moment of stillness a long way down the line, 17 years into your monastic life where, again, you heard that inner whisper or that visceral feeling that it was time again for change and for you to leave your life as a monk and head back to Sweden. Was that a hard voice to listen to? Ooh, that was very inconvenient, you know. Uh, After seven years in Thailand, I was a little bit tired of mainly living with men, you know, because the nun situation is not great in Thailand. But my tradition had started a nun a nun's tradition in England, in West Sussex. And I'd met some of these nuns in Thailand when they came passing through. And uh, I'd read some books of the teacher in in West Sussex. The monastery was in Chithurst. And I just loved those uh, books. I was so in awe of them. And so I travelled to England with the help of my parents, of course. They were pretty pleased to have me a lot closer to Mm. home. And I also passed through Sweden, of course, in summer. It was an interesting experience. And uh, I started living in England for seven years. And then I got quite busy in England because I became part of the management team of the monastery. And so after seven years, I wasn't quite, you know, like a manager, but I was getting very busy in running the monastery. And we did plenty of psychological work in England on the side, as it were. I was interested in that. And so I decided to move to Switzerland, where everybody knows the Swiss. They organize everything better than everybody else. So I (laughs) didn't have to organize everything in Switzerland. And I love the mountains. So our monastery in Switzerland was high up in the Berner Oberland, you know, the Swiss Alps. And uh, some part into my second year, 
It was afternoon, I'd had my little nap. I lit my incense and my candle and bowed to my wooden Buddha image and sat down to meditate. And by now I've meditated every day for over 20 years, so I don't fall asleep very much anymore. Mm. And, you know, a very familiar stillness kind of became apparent or descended. And it lasted, I don't know, 8, 10, 12 minutes. And I just enjoyed that a bit like a warm bath. And then out of this silence, this very familiar voice, same voice I'd heard in my sofa as a young executive, whispered again, it's time to move on. Mm. This time the reaction was different. Oh, this is so inconvenient. Mm. I have a good life. I know my roles. I'm part of a global community. I have a sense of meaning. But as you said before, you know, I also knew you you overlook this voice at your own peril. Yeah. So I took some time, talked to some senior monks and nuns that I felt extra close to, talked to some extra uh, ex-monastics. Of course, people don't do this for life. So I knew a lot of ex-monks and ex-nuns by this time. I had a therapist, a wonderful Scottish woman that's been with me for almost 30 years now. I talked to her regularly and I realized, well, I need to follow this decision. And so it was lovely when I called my mother and said, you know, my monk days are over, I'm coming home. Yeah. You know, my parents visited me all pretty much every year during my monk years. And so my mom had just been to the Swiss monastery and it becomes apparent what she thought of the Swiss monastery when you hear her response. You know, she said, well, yeah, you're a bit too young to retire. <laughs> <laughs> So like her perception of the Swiss monastery was like an old people's home, you know. You got your room, you got your slippers outside your room, you get fed twice a day. And so I came home and uh, most of the ex-monastics, they had told me before that, you know, if you're like most of us, you will underestimate the pain of not being part of a collective yeah. any longer. Yeah. So there I am in Sweden, you know, I got a... I had a fairly serious illness called ITP. I was diagnosed in London by a not so emotionally intelligent doctor who Mm. came out with the test results and told me, you're a walking bomb. Mm. And so, you know, my blood had lost its ability to coagulate. So I was sick. I was poor, didn't have a cent to my name. I, uh, yeah, unemployed. I was single, no plan. It wasn't like, I'm going to stop being a monk because I want to do this instead. Yeah. I had nothing else that I wanted to do. Most of my fellow monks and nuns who left, they left for romantic reasons. Yeah. You know, they might have met somebody that they wanted to live out, you know, a romantic relationship with, or they were just longing for it. For me, it wasn't quite like that. You know, staying in a fairly strict celibacy was all right for me. Mm. So I didn't have like a plan B. And I was really depressed in the beginning. I had like serious anguish, you know, I'd often wake up in my little small house in the garden of a larger house, a parent of a friend let it to me for almost no money. And I wake up at two, three in the morning with just, you know, the bed would be wet from some of us when we have real anguish, we sweat, you know. And so I'd kind of redo the bed with fresh linen. I'd realize if I try to fall asleep, those dark thoughts are going to engulf me. Mm. And so I just lay in bed awake, trying to rest the tension, rest in the body. Can I feel the 
duvet on top of me? Can I feel the weight of the body against the mattress? And I just stay out of thinking in the body experience. And so I say that sometimes just to make a point that the best meditation teacher or spiritual teacher I've ever had was anguish. Mm. Because it's so frightening. Anybody who's had true anguish knows it's really frightening. Yeah. And the worst thing is that you may have a, lots of friends around you and they may tell you, hey, everything else has passed. Nothing horrible has ever lasted. The sun always comes back and you hear them. Your mind understands what they're saying. But your whole system is just feeling not this time. Yeah. And everything you experience, see, hear, it just goes through this filter of darkness, mm -hmm. futility, helplessness, aloneness. It's a deeply frightening experience. It, it's it's the it's the worst. I, I've I, I had a big period of depression myself about ten years ago, and I'm I'm intrigued to know with your 17 years of monastic life prior to that what what did what did you learn from from that dark time well it was like a double whammy as the americans say you know because first of all i feel really really bad because i'm depressed and i have anguish four or five nights a week and on top of that my imagined expectation from the world around me is well you've worked on yourself you've been in the personal development scene for 17 years now, shouldn't you be beyond such problems? You know, my dad even said it as I was the only people I was comfortable hanging out with in this period of my life were my parents because their love is unconditional. And my dad just said once, you know, somehow I'd thought you'd be able to manage these things after 17 years as a Buddhist monk. Mm. And of course I thought it. And to tell you the truth, for me, the solution came mainly from other people. Mm. You know, like I, I have some kind of a media, media karma somehow. So, you know, when I was a young monk in Thailand, a Swedish uh, famous TV presenter, she found me and made a program and that became very popular and viewed. And then her husband was producer for a big Saturday night, biggest BBC equivalent channel. Oh, just a second. Um, Hello? Can I ställa dem utanför? Ställer ni dem utanför? Tack. Sorry. The, <laughs> the, um, my carer, he's gone away to buy cat food and cat sand. Oh. And so there were, I get a lot of flowers right now from the, well, people send me flowers. So they were doing a delivery and nobody's there to receive them. Oh. So anyway, back to the story. Where was I? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, this husband of the TV presenter had a program. So I was invited to do that. And it was this weird experience of my entire system is just screaming, no, mm. I feel like a failure. I'm depressed. I don't want to show myself to the world. I just want to hide away in my little small hutch in a forest and see another season of Desperate Housewives. Please leave me alone. <laughs> I had a certain, you know, hunger for glamour after 17 years as a monk. <laughs> That's brilliant. But then I hear my I hear my mouth say, yes, I'd love to. Mm. And so I go and do this, you know. And uh, that was well received. And then one thing that went to another. And, you know, some friends invited me to their offices to, you know, tell the employees uh, about my experiences, what I learned as a, as a Buddhist monk. And one thing led to another. And pretty soon I was working full-time as a public speaker in the kind of 
inspirational category, I mm. guess. And I really enjoyed that. And then, you know, other people gave me the sense of, yeah, even though I feel like I have nothing to offer and I feel quite lost, other people seem to quite enjoy when I share my stories and my reflections. They don't seem to be bringing out the tar and the feathers very often. Mm. Uh, and then I met my wife. Um, and so you can imagine what that was like after 17 years in a fairly strict celibate. She told me not so long ago that, well, for the first six months of our relationship, you were pretty much like a baby monkey. <laughs> you just wanted to hang around my neck all the time. Oh, that's yeah, adorable. There was a, it was an absolutely enormous hunger for physical closeness. Yeah. You know? Oh, you talk about your wife so beautifully in the book. I was brought to tears oh. on so many occasions with how you talk about her and, and how, I don't know if this is the language that you would use, but, you know, that, that sort of feeling of having a soulmate. It's... Um, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And, and you know, at times so overwhelmingly emotional because of, of your more recent diagnosis in 2018 when you had experienced several physical ailments that led to your diagnosis of ALS, which, you know, you're, you're living with now. And, and again, the way you, you talk about life and death is a profound and so beautiful and eloquent and 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 you talk about life and death in a way that I don't think we hear enough in the West um one of the reasons being because we see death as uh, exclusively a loss and you don't talk about it in that way it's like the ultimate insult you know <laughs> yeah but yeah. You, you don't talk about it like that you, you should have you, oh, you know what, what I've done one mistake recently I had a combination 60th birthday party, farewell party and funeral last Saturday. Wow. I saw the video on Instagram. I invited my closest 300 people, you know, and and it was so funny because, of course, I didn't have time to catch up with everybody. There's 300 people in four hours, you know. But when I saw the video, it was so funny how many said, this is so weird, you know, hashtag should be mixed emotions, you know, because <laughs> I've never seen a party where there's so much crying, but I've never seen mm. a party with so much singing and laughing and hand clapping. And I like that. It was like, yeah, this is human life, you know. It can be wonderful. It can also be very, very painful. But it's like, as a Buddhist monk, we didn't really, we couldn't afford from shying away from the fact of physical death, because there were so many reminders. So, you know, our, our monastery was also the cremation ground when the villagers around the villages surrounding the monasteries, when somebody died, they brought them to the monastery, they lit a fire, uh, we provided some chanting and ceremony. And so I've seen hundreds of bodies in open coffins just, you know, burned to ash and a few scattered bones. And the Buddhist reflections that you do every day they include the fact that, you know, these bodies are not permanent things. We're visitors, you know, we, we have each other and this body on loan. And one day it's time to say farewell. And so I guess when I got the diagnosis, I, I tend to be a drama queen. If I would, you know, describe myself in terms of temperament, 
looking back, I've been a bit of a drama queen. I identify <laughs> more with my emotions than with my thinking process. But when I got the diagnosis, it was like, whoa, this is really interesting, you know. I seem to be handling this a lot better than I would have expected to. And, you know, I can't help but imagine that surely that must have something to do with 17 years of full-on training in a wisdom tradition that I love and respect for the rest of my days. Yeah, because I guess the the immediate feeling that comes up when the word death is is spoken aloud is usually fear, but it seems that that's not necessarily the case with you today. No, it's weird. I remember, you know, at the there was of course lots of speeches and songs and people danced and it was like wild, you know, from the youngest to the mm-hmm. oldest. And uh, and I was very clear about the fact that at the end of it, I want 20 minutes where I speak to people, you know. And so they wheeled me up in my wheelchair and um, I didn't have a plan, didn't know what to say. But I remember that it was it was an interesting. How do I say that? I heard myself say that I have not for one moment felt bitter about being given this particular cup, you know, ALS. Mm. And I have never had a sense of unfairness around it. Uh, On the opposite, almost, you know, after some, you know, the initial shock and all, I had a sense of, well, I guess I may be better equipped for this journey than a lot of people. Mm. And it turns out I was. So that's unusual. And then three years ago, my father was given a terminal diagnosis mm. because he smoked since he was 13, so it was no surprise to him. So me and my brothers and my mother, we took him to Switzerland and he ended his life there because he didn't want to be you know, put in a hospital for long-term care because that just doesn't suit his temperament at all. And so I'd been close to death in a very particular way with a very close person. Mm. And my father and I had this funny rapport where he's felt his whole life that when we die it's the end curtains blackness end and I've felt my whole life that of course it goes on into something else of course it's the end but it's also the beginning of something I don't know what it's the beginning of but I feel very convinced and always have that something ensues and so that's very alive with me so I don't know if it's shocking But I can honestly say on one level, I'm an adventurer. I've always looked for extreme situations, you know, like forest monk, bungee jumping, (laughs) marathon runs without enough training beforehand and whatnot. So, you know, I'm looking for the edges of my capacity and what happens when I'm in that. And so to me, on one level, there's the sadness of leaving everything I know as my life and my people behind. But there's also a sense of adventure like, Something is starting soon, and I have no idea about what about what it is, but I'm very, very curious and interested. Uh, yeah. I wouldn't say I've acquired that attitude. I think it's just, I don't know, maybe I was born under a lucky star or something. <laughs> to me, it seems very lucky at this point in life. Yeah, it's um, it's it's so moving to hear you talk about it. Mm. Thank you. This is, it's like there's so many preconceived notions about death, you know. 
I mean, I'm sitting planning my own funeral now. I've decided the venue. I've decided who's allowed to talk. It's a beautiful venue, but it's not a church because I want to keep it a bit more neutral. Even though I'm a member of the Swedish church and always have been, I've chosen a, a neutral, beautiful venue. And it brings me joy to think about it. And I want it to be, you know, I wrote this morning, I wrote some of the, you know, like you're supposed to indicate what to wear, you know. <laughs> and I thought, well, whatever you're comfortable in, but perhaps some glittery detail, you know, do you say glittery <laughs> in English? Yeah, you know, do. like, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's weird. It gives me joy to, you know, I'm making sure my testament is in place. I'm making sure my wife is financially secure. Yeah. I have the possibility to give gifts to people for various reasons. Mm. So I'm setting my house in order. I'm, you know, death cleaning, if you like. And yeah. it gives me a sense of satisfaction. And I don't have a sense that life is incomplete and I would need 20 more years to be a happy human being. I feel that my life has contained three lives in one life. There was the before the monk life, there was the monk life, and was the after monk life. And all three lives have been much richer and more generous than I could possibly have imagined. Mm -hmm. I've been given a remarkable number of opportunities. And, you know, I feel happy and good about my life. It ended at 60. Well, 60 is quite a lot. You know? mm. A lot of people don't get to see 60. I won't be around when this podcast is broadcast. I know that for a fact because I have a plan. I'm saying that to you in confidence, if you like, because you know you won't be broadcasting till mid-February or so. Yeah. Oh. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, no, I, I feel you. I feel you. It's, um, you know, I'm sure you can recognize it. It's almost like as death approaches, I'm sure you find it easy to imagine that it becomes even more important to stay in one's own truth. Do you follow yeah. me? Yeah. I don't have time to, I don't have time to put the words in a way so that it's palatable to everybody yeah. and compromise too much. Now more than ever, I need to speak my own truth. Yeah. And for some reason, this is how I approach death. This is how I feel about it. And it feels important to voice that, if nothing else, just as a counterpoint to the kind of standard attitude of, you know, death as the ultimate insult to human life. Mm. You know? That's why it's move me so much because it's such a a beautiful expansive way of us to talk about death and it's something that all of us have more than likely dealt with on a very personal level or you know m might even be considering our own um departure and it's it's so important for for these for, for this conversation to be had and, and i'm I can't even express how grateful I am for you to be sharing that with all of us. Um, it's, I don't even know how to articulate how how important I think that is and, and how beautiful it is. And um, I, I feel unbelievably honoured to have had this conversation with you. You know, this is 
been one of the most important conversations I think I've had. You know, I, I've never met you. Oh. I I was, oh. you know, seriously floored by your book. But, but to talk to you is, is something else. Yeah, wonderful. Oh, that's very nice for me to hear because it's, uh, you know, I've... I've never woken up uh, getting out of bed thinking I'm the best thing that's happened since sliced bread. But <laughs> of course, in Sweden now, this uh, uh, because of the book and the speaking tour, I did this uh, unprecedented attention on me as a person. And of course, I need to kind of pick pick the uh, applause down a few notches because. At the end of the day, you know, it sounds like I'm Jesus in some of the social media <laughs> commentaries. And I know damn well. And if not, you can ask my wife. I'm not Jesus <laughs> by any means. <laughs> but uh, it's lovely to be able to, you know, reach somebody like yourself, a person I've never met. And because of my physical appearance being so uh, haggard these days because of ALS, I chose not to have videos. So we're just hearing each other. But still, there's this sense of, oh, wonderful, she receives mm. me, you know, she mm. understands me. But there's yeah. one thing we haven't spoken about, Fern, which is very important. Please, do tell. I googled your name this morning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> and the first big news that comes up is that you're grieving a cat. I am, Bjorn. Of course you are. Of course you are. And you know what? Your cat that died is the spitting image of our cat. Oh, no way. Yeah. And, you know, we got it a year and a half ago. And friends of ours, it just walked into their garden. It was obviously abandoned in very poor shape, half dying, oh. sustaining on insects, basically. And we came a week later and it just connected with my wife incredibly. And when we were going to leave, it sat under my wheelchair and so our friend said, we think this is your cat. You want to take it home? We've never had a cat. We've never considered having a cat. And of course, like any new cat owner, you become totally cat focused. Of course. And then, you know, with my limitations, my, I weigh very little. And because of poor circulation, my hands are very cold and kind of bony. So the cat has connected more to my wife because... She gives love all the time and she's yeah. the one who feeds him. And so a week ago, I thought to myself, poof, there's not much time left now. What could I do to make my last period in life as enjoyable as possible? And I have six carers who give me 724 care. And one of them breeds cat as a side thing. And so on Saturday... A little Maine Coon kitten arrived at our oh, home. <laughs> wow. And it's just like, I know people who don't have cats can't understand this. Mm -hmm. But in terms of heart openers, I don't know what can compare to a little furry Nothing. kitten. I mean, it's just like, you want to have unconditional love for a while, well, get a kitten, you know. I know, they're, they're the <laughs> yeah. best. You know, my my cat that passed this week, you know, I, I, I got her when I was 20 with another cat who luckily is, is still with me and she's kind of obviously slightly confused about what's going on but you know that was that was 20 years ago and and you just realize how how loyal they are and how pure that love is it's so oh, yeah. uncomplicated and pure and 
I feel so grateful that I, you know, I got to have that friendship for so long. And and I'm and I'm really, you know, I was talking to my producer Anushka about this before we started recording. I'm really weirdly content in this period of grief because I feel really connected to her and um and I almost don't want it to go at this stage because I feel her presence. I I've had lots of little wonderful signs that have showed up and um and like you said you know if you don't have a an animal companion cat or whatever animal it is you might not understand the grief or might even think it's over the top in comparison to to a human loss but it 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 was such a an unbelievably special bond that I had for two decades that you know I, I am I am feeling it and um and it, I'm just going with it. I'm just going with it at the moment. And I and I agree. I think you know she's definitely gone off on a on a beautiful adventure somewhere. Most definitely. And it's like in many people's lives, it's perhaps the most uncomplicated love. You know, it is. is to a, an animal. It's it's, mm. it's seriously. It beautiful. just doesn't get complicated. No. Nope. And also, what I love about cats is like they're never dishonest. No. <laughs> no. And they never ever had the thought. What is he, she, they going to think about me or this? <laughs> no, they do what they, <laughs> they want. They just live their life, <laughs> you know. Uh, you yeah. can like it or not like it or laugh at it, mm. but they'll live their life. They're also the best meditators out there. I watch, oh, yeah. I watch oh, you know, yeah. my cat sit there meditating for hours, just looking at one point oh, yeah. in complete bliss. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. You know Eckhart Tolle? Yeah, I love Eckhart. Yeah, I've kind of followed him for a long while and seen him live. And in one of the, his books, he writes, I've had nine spiritual teachers. All of them have been cats. Oh, wow. I didn't know that about him. That's so oh, yes. wonderful. Oh, yes. That's so oh, wonderful. Yeah. Oh, Bjorn, I don't even know what to say. I, you know, I'll I'll close the chat in the way that I started it by saying... Thank you. And it's a truly wholehearted thank you for the book, for taking time to talk to me today, for the, the stories that you've shared, for the the thoughts and the wisdom that, that you've imparted. I, I, I won't ever forget this chap. So thank you. Wonderful. I won't either, Fern. It was a real pleasure talking to a real human being. I really enjoyed that. I need this too, you know. My life is not so much fun anymore, but this kind of conversation makes me come alive. So this was very, very enjoyable for me too. Looking back, I still don't really know like what to say, like how to round off such an experience, getting to chat to Bjorn. And um, when I found out that he'd passed away, a month or so ago, I felt deeply sad. As I said, you know, I'd never met Bjorn. We only had this one conversation, but I really felt that we connected in that chat and were able to go quite deep with that chat. And it felt like a total honour. And I really hope that, that you enjoyed listening to that and that maybe you even feel a bit differently about death and maybe even have a slightly different perspective now on life. I I certainly do. I really, really do. And I cannot thank Bjorn enough. And I really hope that for Bjorn's partner, 
that he's left behind and his family and friends, that having interviews like this out there is of some comfort, knowing that his legacy, his wisdom, his voice um, is still carrying to people and really impacting people's lives. That is certainly my wish. Bjorn's utterly wonderful book is called I May Be Wrong and Other Wisdoms from Life as a Forest Monk and it's out now and it's just sublime. Thank you so much to Bjorn for touching my life in such an exceptional way. Thank you to producer Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio who is always alongside me in these extraordinary conversations I get to have and thank you to you for lending me your time to listen to this very special chat. Thank you so much. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com